down in our study of the life of Joseph. And in fact, today we're going to have precious little to say about Joseph. Um, We are now going to be in Genesis chapter 47 to start out today. Genesis chapter 47, verse 28 is what we're going to pick up. The title of our message this morning in our series, Meant for Good, is How to Die. Now, I don't know about you. Um, some of you may be familiar. There's a pilot's adage. I took some private pilot lessons for a while. really enjoyed it. And one thing our instructor told us was there is only one thing a pilot has to do. You know what that is? Land. Yep. <laughs> Land the plane. You don't have much choice about landing the plane. Um, you, you, can't, you don't have to take off. You don't have to go anywhere. But once you've taken off, you've, you're going to land that plane one way or the other. Um, as I, I think about it, you know, they, there's another little adage. There's nothing as useless as runway behind you, uh, altitude above you, or fuel back at the airport. <laughs> Those are just uh, things that we have to realize that when we come to the end of our life, dying is one thing that we've got to do. <laughs> You don't really get a choice on that. Now, of course, you all know, I mean, if the Lord delays his coming, if the Lord returns and we're uh, taken out, but this life will end that we have. And the question then is not how to die in that sense. You know, the, the way to die is to sin. We've all sinned. The wages of sin is death. And we are, uh, because we were born under Adam, we were already born in this kingdom of death. Death has been our lot from the moment we were conceived. So everybody dies. The question is, how do you die well? That was not nearly as catchy of a title. And so I chose how to die, but the question is still there. How do you die well? How can you be prepared to die? You say, well, I don't need to be prepared to die. I'm healthy. I've got this or that or the other. We all know people who uh, thought they did not need to be prepared to die right up until they did. So this is something that's burned heavily on my heart as I contemplated uh, how, to, how to do this. So again, Genesis chapter 47, if you're not used to looking at a Bible, uh, I'm sorry, Genesis chapter 46, it's on page 46 uh, in, your, in the Bibles provided in the pews. I hope that you'll look there. If not, it's also up on the screen. Again, Genesis chapter 46, verse 28, brings us to the end of a long saga uh, after being separated from his son for decades. Israel is reunited with Joseph. And Israel at this point is an old man, and he is coming to Egypt to die. Genesis chapter 46, verse 28 reads, And he sent Judah before him unto Joseph to direct his face unto Goshen, and they came into the land of Goshen. Now I have to give you a little bit of information here. Why is Israel sending Judah out ahead of him? He says, Judah, I want you to go on ahead. I'm going to follow you to the land of Goshen. Now, he, Judah, is the one who's going to organize this. Now, Judah's not the oldest son, but the oldest son, through some things that we skipped over, but uh, eventually we'll go back and look at, uh, he had disqualified himself from the birthright through his sin. So Judah is now the effective firstborn. He's the leader of the Israelites. Uh, under, of course, their father. So as he comes in, he 
is the leader reconciling them. But there's more to it than that. Who was the mastermind behind selling Joseph into slavery all those years ago? It was Judah. He made this mess, and now he's going to clean it up. I hope that we have that kind of wherewithal you know, to, to realize that when we've sinned, to make it right, we have to do everything we can to repair the consequences of that sin. If I steal $100 from you, and I say, I am so sorry, and I keep the $100, maybe I'm not that very sorry. <laughs> if Israel separates his father from his brother, I'm sorry, if uh, Israel is separated from his son by Judah, Judah has a responsibility to do everything in his power to bring them back together again. Uh, now, at the, at the risk of spiritualizing it, though, I want to tell you that it was not possible for Israel to go into the land where he was to die until Judah had gone before him. You are not ready to die until the lion of the tribe of Judah, Jesus Christ, has gone on before you. That's, the, that's sort of this overarching thing that we all need to remember, is that the only reason any of us can approach death with boldness and confidence is because Jesus has already been there and already plundered it. If Jesus has gone on before you, you have nothing to fear. So the line of the tribe of Judah has gone on. So the first thing you have to do to be ready to die is you have to have Jesus as your captain. You have to have Jesus as the one who's gone before you. If Jesus hasn't gone before you into death and given you victory, then death is the enemy that will crush you. you know, it doesn't matter how strong you are, how rich you are, how good-looking you are, how popular you are. When death comes, all that is done. Death is the great equalizer. Ecclesiastes says it's better to be a living dog than a dead lion. You don't have any power. But if Jesus has gone on before and has conquered death, then you've got something. So the first thing you need is for it to have gone, him to have gone on before you. You know, he's already done it 2,000 years ago. But he says you can appropriate that by faith. You say, I turn from my sin and I trust in Jesus. Jesus says, then I will walk you safely through. One of, my, um, one of the songs that uh, really resonates, I think, that we're, we're familiar with is, uh, I don't have to cross Jordan alone. I heard that song. Um, one of the, the most beautiful recording of it that I've ever heard is, uh, many of you are familiar with Glenn Payne, the lead singer from The Cathedrals. Um, and in 2004, shortly before his death, he was not able to go to the National Quartet Convention, and they called him, and they put him, they piped him in through the sound system, and they asked him to sing uh, through the phone on his deathbed, from which he never recovered. And uh, so he sings these, the, a verse and the chorus of, I won't have to cross Jordan alone. And you imagine, I hope that at the end, we all know people who have died well, we all know people who have died poorly. But at the end of your life, I hope that you have the courage that you can go out singing. I don't have to cross Jordan alone. What a beautiful thing. God has gone on before you. Judah has gone on before, the lion of the tribe of Judah. I just, uh, I don't know about you, that arrests my heart. It arrests my heart. And I just, you know, there are people, of course, who for physical or mental reasons are not able to actually sing, but just by their demeanor and everything about them, you know from the song of their heart, they're, 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 they know whose they are. And um, sorry. When I went uh, up to the hospital to uh, talk to Brother Buddy, 
and to give him the news that the doctors had said he wasn't going to make it. Um, <laughs> he said, well, this is, if this is the time for me to go, then this is the time for me to go. You can't outthink God. Goodness gracious. <laughs> I hope that at the end of my life, I have that kind of sense of peace to say, you know what? If this is my lot, then this is my lot. You can't outthink God. Jesus has gone on before me. He knows the way. When I come to the river at ending of day, when the last winds of sorrow have blown, there will be somebody waiting to show me the way. I don't have to cross Jordan alone. Um, you, you hear, you read, people <laughs> spend so much money buying books about people who claim to have gone to heaven and back. Uh, but let me tell you, most of you already own a book from somebody who has been to the other side of death and come back again. <laughs> And he's the only one who really knows what it's like. And he is your guide. Are you ready to die? <laughs> you know, how to die is to say, Judah, the lion of the tribe of Judah. So I went and preached at another church and got bulletins and stuff stacked in here. The lion of the tribe of Judah goes on before me. And he wrote a book to tell me it's all going to be all right. <laughs> you see, it hasn't entered into the heart of man what God hath prepared for those that love him but because we know that he who uh, did not withhold his own son, how shall he not with him freely give us all things? We know that everything God has for us is good. So I think about this then. I think then about this idea here of we need to know, more important than anything else I'm going to say to you, you need to know that Jesus has gone on before you. That is how to die. He's the one who directs your face. He's the one who guides you to the place of rest. But a beautiful, beautiful thing. Verse 29, And Joseph made ready up his chariot and went to meet Israel his father to Goshen and presented himself unto him. And he fell on his neck and wept on his neck a good while. You can't really blame him. <laughs> Joseph left when he was 17. And now he was, he was 30 when he entered Pharaoh's court. And then another uh, at least 10 years of the, uh, by the time they actually got there of the famine and the, the good times. You're looking at just an incredibly lengthy period of time these, this father and son had been separated. And when jo- Joseph, the, you know, the prime minister of Egypt and all of his august majesty comes and his chariot comes to his father, they come and they weep on each other. Commentators say, you know, it's not really clear in the Hebrew who's doing the weeping. And, of course, that's intentional. Moses is doing that very clearly because they're both weeping on each other's necks. Restored. Now, you see this. And Israel said unto Joseph, Now let me die, since I have seen thy face, because thou art yet alive. Israel had said before, You know, if I lose another son, it's going to take my head down to the grave. But now, he says, I've seen my son again. I am ready to die. I'm going to draw two applications from this. Uh, One, of course, his son who was dead to him is alive again. I've told you over and over again that Joseph is a picture of Jesus. He says, because my son was dead and is alive again, I am ready to die. Because Jesus was dead and is alive again, you and I can be ready to die. Maybe a more practical application for your everyday life, though. You are not ready to die as long as you've got conflict with your friends and family. Jesus says, if you realize your brother has ought against you, uh, leave your gift at the altar, go and be reconciled to your brother, and then bring your gift. Paul says, as much as it is up to you, be at peace with all men. 
Until his relationship with his son was restored, he was not ready to die. Some of you have been holding grudges against people for a long time and have not made peace with people that you should have made peace with. You don't know when they're going to die. You don't know when you're going to die. And if they die first and you go to their grave, you can shout at them all you want. But it is too late. How many have ever heard somebody say, send me my flowers when I'm alive? You say, oh, I just, I feel so bad for this person. You know, I just wish that I'd said, you don't really wish you'd said it or you would have said it. You want to know how to die well? You need to understand that your relationship with other people is a shadow of your relationship with God. And as long as you are unwilling to forgive and unwilling to have a relationship with other people, your relationship with God is broken. God will not entertain that. And so Joseph here is reconciled to his father, and his father says, now I'm ready to die. Of course, here, it wasn't because of sin between them. And if there had been nothing that could have been done, if Joseph would have really been dead, then Israel still would have had to die. But I want you to understand is because they could be restored, they were restored. And he says, now I'm ready to die. So if you want to be ready to die, you have to make peace with the people in your life. Some of you have got family members you haven't talked to in 10 years. And when they die or you die, there will be nothing else you can do about that. It's not worth it. It's not worth it. You need to be ready to die. Like, uh uh-oh, I can tell he's going to be meddling today. He says, verse 31, And Joseph said unto his brethren and unto his father's house, I will go up and show Pharaoh and say unto him, My brethren and my father's house, which were in the land of Canaan, are come unto me. And the men are shepherds, for their trade hath been to feed cattle. And they have brought their flocks and their herds and all that they have. And it shall come to pass when Pharaoh shall call you and shall say, Where is your, what is your occupation? That you shall say, Thy servant's trade hath been about cattle from our youth even until now, both we and also our fathers, that you may dwell in the land of Goshen. For every shepherd is an abomination unto the Egyptians. So Joseph says, Joseph kind of ignores what his father says about being ready to die because he knows there's still more business to be taken care of. He said, we've got to take care of the financial provisions for the family. And you say, well, what do you, where do you get that from? Uh, well, they, they're making sure they've got shepherding, they've got land. If you're a shepherd, and it says they've been about raising cattle, uh, that word cattle in our modern language just means cows, right? But uh, in the King James language and in the Hebrew language, it means livestock. You know, it's animals. They said, we're, we're animal raisers. And the, the Egyptians hate animal raisers. So let them know who you are, and you can live on the outskirts. Couple things there, but I, one is that prepares for the spiritual well-being of the people, because if they're living in the cities of Egypt, they will start to live the lifestyle of the cities of Egypt. What was Lot's great problem? Lot's great problem was he pitched his tent towards Sodom, um, and you know eventually the angels came and they got Lot and his family out of Sodom, but they could not get Sodom out of Lot's family. That's the, that's the problem. Uh, the reason is the Bible says, Come ye therefore out, go ye therefore out from among them and be ye separate and touch not the unclean thing, saith the Lord. As Christians, we have to be separate. You cannot live the way that everybody else lives. 
Now, that doesn't mean, well, I don't talk to sinners. Uh, Paul says, if I had meant that, you would have to go out of the world in 1 Corinthians. That's not what it means. Jesus was the friend of sinners, you know. Oftentimes, you know, I wonder, when was the last time a Christian was accused of that? But it does mean that you have to have the boat in the water without having the water in the boat. As a Christian, you have to say, I am, I love you, but I am not going to be like you. I'm not going to do the things that you do. You know, I love you how you are. I, I, I love you just as you are. I love you too much to be happy with you staying that way. But I cannot do the things that you do. You know, I can't necessarily go all the places that you go. I've got to be different. The reason that they're making provisions for the Israelites to live on the outer regions of Egypt is so that Egypt will not capture their hearts. Now, if you've read through the book of Exodus, you know that Egypt, even at the distance, captured their hearts. Can you imagine if they had lived day by day there? And so you think about that spiritual provision. But I also, you know, and are you teaching your children and your family about how to be spiritually separate from the world? Are you leaving them that inheritance, that heritage to say, you know, I'm different. We're different. We follow God. We're separate from the lost, not separate. Like we don't talk to them. We hate them (laughs) separate. Like we don't live like that. Like people tell we're different. Jesus says, by your love, will all men know that you're my disciples. Now, That's the spiritual heritage. But at the same time, there's also a financial provision. They've got to have food to eat. Now, in those days, that meant securing land. And so he sends Joseph, Joseph goes on into Pharaoh to say, look, my family needs land for their shepherding. Now, again, the Bible says, A man who fails to provide for his own, and especially those of his own household, is worse than an infidel. Now, he says, even the non-believers take care of their family. You've denied the faith and are worse than an infidel if you don't provide for your family. Deny the faith because you have made a mockery of Christianity by uh, trusting other people to take care of those God's made you responsible for. Uh, that's a verse that a lot of people, you know. And again, it doesn't mean that you are a non-believer. My uh, pastor growing up, Brother Daryl Streeter, another man who died uh, exceptionally well. Um, he, he was a pastor for a very long time, and like a lot of pastors, he lived in a parsonage. You know, but before he died, he and his wife had saved up money to pay cash for a house, you know, little by little over years, so that she would have somewhere to live when something happened to him. And he said to the church when he was moving out of the parsonage, he said, look, you know, this is what the scripture says. And uh, I know that I'm going to heaven when I die, but I sure would hate for Jesus to say, come on in here, you old infidel. You know, he said, I've got to make provision. Now, what does that mean in our life? In our life, it's not securing land, right? But there are some things that you ought to do. And here, as your pastor, let me tell you some things. Uh, I've sat through, I've done a lot of funerals. <laughs> you know, I've, I've done uh, more funerals than weddings, and sometimes that seems depressing, but you realize you do weddings two people at a time, and everybody gets their own funeral. Um, I've done a lot of funerals, and I have seen some awful, awful situations. Um, let me try to help you protect your family from that. One thing you need, and I am meddling now, is a will. 
You do not need to put your family through going to court and trying to get things taken care of. You say, well, I just don't want to think about dying. All right, well, I brought it up, so we're here. You're thinking about it anyway. You're thinking about the fact that you are going to die, and you need to know how to do it right. And I don't care how old you are, what your situation is, how little you have, you need a will that at least says, if I die, it goes to my spouse. If my spouse and I die at the same time, it goes to my kids or whoever. You don't need a complicated will. You just need something so that it'll be taken care of. And you say, well, I don't need any of that. Look, do you have a vehicle that's in your name and not in your spouse's name? Do you know what a mess it is for them to get it in the case of things like that? You can make your family's life a mess by not having a will. You need to make physical provision for your family to be prepared to die. You say, well, and a lot of people say, I just don't like to think about that. You're going to die. I hate to be the one to break it to you, but they have not yet found a cure, and they won't. The only cure for death is Jesus. And so you need to make that provision. You know you're going to die, so you need to be taken care of. And you know, wills, they don't go bad. You just say, well, I, you know, I don't think I'm going to, I think I'm fine. Well, when you die eventually, do you want your spouse to get it? Then go ahead and write it down now. It's not expensive, and it will save your family so much heartache. Just take care of it. The other thing is, of course, everybody knows, um, hmm, I am meddling, and I apologize for that, but he who fails to provide for his own is worse than an unbeliever. Here's the deal. If you die, you should not have your family in the, put your family in the position where they have to beg for money on the internet to bury you. That's a very popular thing. Got the GoFundMes and different things. And I understand sometimes things happen. I'm not saying those are all bad. But what I'm saying is, in the general course of your life, if you're young and healthy and they depend on your income, you ought to have term life insurance. If they don't depend on your income, go and pre-plan and prepay your funeral. (laughs) They're not getting any cheaper, right? You're not going to save by postponing your funeral. You go down to the funeral home and you say, here's what I want. (laughs) And here's, you know, let me start making payments on it. And you will save your family so much heartache. I have sat with families planning funerals. I will tell you, I did one funeral for the same man. I did two funerals for the same man because his family could not agree on how to do it. And so they each had their own funeral. You say, well, that would never happen in my family. You think he thought that it would happen in his family? You do not need to put your family through that heartache and that grief. So go say what you want, you know. And that also, do you know how hard it is to... When somebody's died and you're sitting there looking at the catalog, you want to give your family member the very best, right? You don't, want the, you don't want to feel like you're cheating them. But you know when you die, you're not going to care. Go ahead and let it be known. I hope you sing lots of nice songs at my funeral. I hope somebody preaches the gospel. And then put me in a wooden box. You know, and you're, but when your family's there and they say, well, you know, do you want the, the rubber seal for only an extra $200 that'll keep water out? Your family is going to say, yeah, I guess we want to go ahead and do that. But if you go and you pre-plan your funeral, you're going to say, no, I don't care about the water. <laughs> I'm not going to be there. And when I move back in, my Lord's going to renovate it first for me. You know, it doesn't matter if there's water damage. <laughs> I'll have a new body, graves all bursting, saints all shouting, heavenly beauty all around. You know, I'm gonna say, you know, that doesn't matter. And you can say that. But your family members in their grief will have a very hard time saying that, won't they? So make financial provision for your family. Get a will. If you need life insurance, get life insurance. If you're past the point where they depend on your income, prepay your funeral. 
Get it taken care of. Even if you're not ready to prepay your funeral, go to the funeral home and write something down so the funeral director's got something. You know, get those things taken care of. It doesn't hurt you to do it, and it will save your family a lot of grief. If you want to be ready to die, you need to know that you have made everything as easy on your loved ones as you possibly can. And, uh, you know, I really hesitated including this. I do see here in the scriptures, uh, before his death, Israel makes physical provision. And so it was on my mind. And I really wanted, I was really nervous about the whole thing. But here's my deal is, if I don't say this to you now, there's probably nobody is ever going to come up to you and say, hey, you need to get a will. And by the time I come and tell you it one-on-one, it'll be a little late, right? You have this stuff taken care of. And uh, you need to make those kind of provisions. You need to provide for your family. You don't want to have them dependent on other people when you could have made provision. Now, again, I will say, we all know people who things have happened where they were financially destitute and different things, and they were not able to make these provisions. That's very different than the vast majority of people who just never thought about it and never made plans. You can do that. All the funeral homes will go. You can pay for a funeral at today's prices and save a lot of trouble. I'm not going to tell you what funeral home to go to. They're all great. I don't care. But make, take care of your family if you're going to be ready to die. Now, I'll say that is less important by a million times than knowing that Jesus goes before you. The very last thing that I want to do at your funeral is have to dance around the question of what happened to you. I've done funerals for people before where I had no reason to believe that they were in heaven. Now, I don't know, so I would never stand before and say your loved one is in hell right now. But I'm also, if I don't have any reason to believe that you're in heaven, I'm not going to say that you are. I'm, I'm not going to lie at your funeral. You've seen the shirts, you know, live so your preacher doesn't have to lie at your funeral. I'm not going to lie at your funeral. I may avoid the subject. You know, if, I, if it's that kind of situation, then I will uh, say, you know, if they could talk to you now, here's what they would say, that you need to place your trust in Jesus. Here's what Jesus wants to do for you. He wants you to trust in him so you, he can walk with you through your grief. He, blessed are they that mourn, for they shall be comforted. That's what I'll say. Have you ever been to a funeral um, where I've talked like that? <laughs> I'll say those things anyway. If you've ever been to a funeral where my sermon was about blessed are they that mourn for they shall be comforted and not about, you know, celebrating the fact that this person lives on in glory, well, it's because as far as I knew, they didn't. You don't want to put your family in that position you don't, of grieving over you. You say, well, you know, I don't care what happens to me. Well, you, you will, but you don't want to do that. If you care for your family, make sure that you know that you're right with God and that they know that everybody knows that you're right with God so that you will have a happy funeral. I have been alongside families where we knew that person was a godly person and then alongside families where somebody made a profession of faith when they were seven and you know, never lived with God at all. And even with that chance, the spirit in the room was so different. I've been to funerals where you were uplifted by being at that funeral, where you were encouraged by the time you left that funeral. I've been to funerals here with some of your loved ones where you thought, wow, you know, what a wonderful thing. 
And I have also known people through different ways who have done funerals. And years later, the families are still torn up by grief because there is no peace to be had. Don't put your loved one in that position. Be ready to die. First, know that Judah goes on before you. Leave a legacy of spiritual separation, but also take care of them physically. Make sure those provisions are made. Okay. We go on. Chapter 47, verse 1. We're going to read through this very quickly. It's just uh, Pharaoh agreeing to what Joseph had already said. Then Joseph came and told Pharaoh and said, My father and my brethren and their flocks and their herds and all that they have are come out of the land of Canaan. And behold, they are in the land of Goshen. And he took some of his brethren, even five men, and presented them unto Pharaoh. And Pharaoh said unto his brethren, What is your occupation? And they said unto Pharaoh, Thy servants are shepherds, both we and also our fathers. They said moreover unto Pharaoh, For to sojourn in the land are we come. For thy servants have no pasture for their flocks. For the famine is sore in the land of Canaan. Now therefore we pray thee, let thy servants dwell in the land of Goshen. He says, look, we're not here to stay permanently. One, we're just shepherds. We're not trying to get ahead politically. We're just, you know, peaceful shepherds. And we're not here to stay. We're here to sojourn. We're here as pilgrims, as refugees in this country. I mean, to stick that, hold on to that. That's important. We're just here as pilgrims. We're just passing through Egypt. And so we don't really have these pretensions. You know, if you've read the story of the Exodus, you know the reason they started killing all the Hebrew boys was because they believed that they had pretension of power. But here, immediately, they make clear that was never the case. They don't want to take over Egypt. They just want to have somewhere to live. And Pharaoh spake unto Joseph, saying, Thy father and thy brethren are come unto thee. The land of Egypt is before thee. In the best of the land, make the fa- thy father and brethren to dwell. In the land of Goshen, let them dwell. And if thou knowest any men of activity among them, then make them rulers over my cattle. <laughs> he says to Joseph, you know, yes, let them live here. And if any of them are half the man you are, put them in charge of my livestock, since they know about livestock. You know, you know that sometimes having godly people you're connected to can be one of the best letters of recommendation you can possibly get. So they're, they're given this position of power, God's blessing, over and over again. Now, here we go. And Joseph brought in Jacob, his father. Now, he didn't bring Jacob in to beg. He allows the brothers to take care of that. Brings in Jacob, his father, and set him before Pharaoh. And Jacob blessed Pharaoh. Now, you know, he's an old man. The one who had wrestled with God is now carried in and set down. But the fact that he is, his body is beat down does not change his heart. He is a man who's been touched and changed by God. Though our outward man is perishing, yet our inward man is being renewed day by day. Look what he says. Look at this. This is amazing. And Jacob blessed Pharaoh. The Bible says, without controversy, the greater... The lesser is blessed by the greater. Jacob comes in to the king of Egypt and he blesses him. Now, everyone that is alive in the whole ancient world is alive because of Pharaoh. They're all dependent on Pharaoh at this point, and really Pharaoh, Joseph. And Israel comes in and he blesses Pharaoh. 
Now, what did Genesis 15, the Abrahamic covenant, say? One, it said that they would live 400 years in slavery in a land that was not their own. Two, it said, in thee shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. Because life was saved, he was blessing all the nations of the earth through Pharaoh. Now, is this the final fulfillment of that prophecy? Absolutely not. Who is the one that blesses all the nations of the earth? Well, it's Jesus. The son of Judah, the lion of the tribe of Judah, it brings blessing to all the nations of the earth. But what I want you to see is that God brings on his promises in heaps and heaps and heaps of fulfillment. That Joseph had saved the life of the entire Mediterranean world physically. And even better than that, Jesus would come and bring salvation to the world spiritually. What a glorious thing. I just, that just grabs me. Joseph, Israel comes in and blesses Pharaoh. We don't know exactly what he says, but I'm going to assume he prayed for prosperity and long life. Because the next question is, what about your, you know, how old are you? So uh, Pharaoh said unto Jacob, how old art thou? And Jacob said unto Pharaoh, the days of the years of my pilgrimage are 130 years. Few and evil have the days of, my, have the, days of the years of my life been and have not attained unto the days of the years of the life of my fathers in the days of their pilgrimage. He says, I'm 130. My days have been short and full of evil. He said, I've had a short, hard life. Uh, he said, I haven't lived as long as my fathers did. And that's kind of interesting. This is an, as a historical side note, Jacob is older than Pharaoh. And he's saying, yes, I'm an old man, but I didn't live as old as my fathers did. The, the other people in the ancient world, you read in the Bible about these super long lifespans of the patriarchs. The other people in the ancient world who were not blessed by God did not enjoy those piles and piles of blessing of life. So some of the re, sometimes people say, well, you know, we know people didn't live that long in the ancient world. Well, in fact, the Bible even says that the other nations didn't, but the Israelites did. He lived to be, he was 130. He lived to be uh, older than that. We'll see in a minute, 147. But here he is, 130 years old. And he says, my life has been hard. And it's been short. How many of you feel like your life has been hard? Don't raise your hand. (laughs) And short, flies by, right? But look at his perspective. Here's the next thing I want you to know about how to be prepared to die. He says, he says, the days of the years of my pilgrimage. That word pilgrimage is the same word translated sojourning a minute ago. They said, we just want to come and stay in the land of Egypt for a little while. We don't want to make a permanent home here. We're just staying here for a little while while we are passing through. Jacob says, the years of my life, I've been passing through here for 130 years. You want to be prepared to die. You need to understand that you are just a pilgrim, just passing through. This world, if you're a Christian, is not your home. Now, I've stayed in hotel rooms around the country. I have stayed in some lousy hotel rooms. I think I told you all the story about the time I was in Glendale, California, and I stayed in a hotel room that was so loud that they had um, earplugs there because it was so loud because it was next to the highway. The floor was wet when I came in, and the whole thing smelled like mildew. It was fantastic. But do you know what I didn't do? I didn't 
tear out the carpet, or install a soundproof window. Do you know why that was? Because I was just passing through. I was not going to spend a lot of time and energy on things where I was not going to be for very long. Now, let me tell you, you spend a lot of time on your body, on your health, on the world you live in. You say, well, we really need to do more for the world. I think that's great. However, we need to hold those things loosely because we are just passing through. You can spend a lot of money doing a lot of things to your body, a lot of time and a lot of energy doing a lot of things on your body, but you don't get to keep it. It's a hotel room. Why do you spend so much time on a hotel room you know is going to sit vacant in the bottom of a six-foot hole? It doesn't matter. If you want to be ready to die, you need to know that's always where you've been going, that you are just a pilgrim just passing through. He's saying that I've got a mansion over the hilltop. I'm just a pilgrim in search of a city. Here Hebrews 11 says, oh, I wasn't going to read this, and we're short on time already, but sorry. Hebrews 11. I just can't help myself. I'm not really sorry. I'm not going to make restitution. Um, Hebrews 11. Oh, I just, I just love this so much. Yeah, I, I sent it out on our text alert to try to get people to read it themselves, but I just can't help it. Hebrews 11, verse 13. <laughs> These all died in faith, not having received the promises, but having seen them afar off and were persuaded of them and embraced them and confessed that they were strangers and pilgrims on the earth. Are you a stranger and a pilgrim on the earth? This world is not my home. There's a contemporary Christian song. All I know is I'm not home yet. This is not where I belong. He says, look at this, look at this. He says in verse 14, for they that say such things declare plainly that they seek a country. He says, we're strangers and pilgrims. We say that because we're looking for somewhere else. And truly, if they'd been mindful of that country from whence they came out, they might have had opportunity to have returned. If they cared about the place of the earth, they might have been able to go back. But now they desire a better country that is a heavenly. Wherefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he hath prepared for them a city. Here's what I want you to know. is that God has a place for you. That we look for a city that hath foundations, whose builder and maker is God. That this world is not your home, that you're passing through, that you're a stranger and a pilgrim on the earth, you're not a citizen here. How much time we spend fretting about elections for a country that we will not live in for very long. Colleen and I, when we uh, went on our honeymoon, we went to Israel, and... Um, we were in Paris for eight hours. We had a layover in Paris, and we, we left the airport long enough to go to the Eiffel Tower and to get lunch, and then went back to the airport. But we've been to Paris. But do you know what I didn't worry about the entire time I was there? The Paris elections. Do you know why? Because I was not going to be in France for very long. That was not my country. You know, I'm glad that we, you know, I'm glad to live in the United States of America. I'm glad we have religious freedom and different things. Uh, but there is a reason that I have very deliberately broken the flag code. Flag code says that the American flag goes on the speaker's right because it's the position of highest honor. One of the first things that I did was move the Christian flag to the right because our allegiance is first to the heavenly country. Our allegiance is first to the king. I don't know why the Texas flag is over there. I think the cleaning crew moved it, but that's all right. And I... The, uh, I set up the Christian flag over there, the American flag, and the Texas flag over there. 
The point is that our allegiance is to God first because that's our home. If you want to be ready to die, you need to know you are a pilgrim. This is not where you belong. So you need a city whose builder and maker is God. Your life is too valuable to waste it on the world that is passing away and also its lust because he that doeth the will of God abideth forever. That's what 1 John says. (laughs) Wrap your mind around that for a moment. Jacob uses the same word to refer to his time on earth as the Israelites used to refer to their time in Egypt. Just a short stay until I go home. I just... (laughs) Sometimes, you know, you look at the Bible and you just start unraveling it and it just, you just see more and more there, don't you? It's amazing. So, and Jacob blessed Pharaoh. He blessed him again and went out from before Pharaoh. And Joseph placed his father and his brethren and gave them a possession in the land of Egypt. They've got a place now, but it's still not home. In the best of the land, in the land of Ramses, as Pharaoh had commanded. And Joseph nourished his father and his brethren and his, all his father's household with bread, according to their families. I'm going to jump down. I'm going to have to skip a bunch of what I thought I was going to say, but uh, verse 27 of the chapter. And Israel dwelt in the land of Egypt and the country of Goshen, and they had possessions therein and grew and multiplied exceedingly. And Jacob lived in the land of Egypt 17 years, so the whole age of Jacob was 147 years. And the time drew nigh that Israel must die. And he called his son Joseph and said unto him, If now I have found grace in thy sight, put, I pray thee, my hand, thy hand under my thigh. This is how they made a, an oath. Is they, they, uh, we shake hands or whatever. They put their hands under opposite thighs as the sign of vulnerability and commitment. Um, he says, If I found grace in your sight. Really interesting. Last time he said that was when he stood before Esau. Jacob is a changed man. You just need to study that out on your own. I don't, I don't have time, unfortunately. He says, The... Uh, I, I pray thee, put thy hand under my thigh and deal kindly and truly with me. Bury me not, I pray thee, in Egypt. But I will lie with my fathers and thou shalt carry me out of Egypt and bury me in their burying place. And he said, I will do as thou hast said. And he said, swear unto me. And he swore unto him. And Israel bowed himself upon the bed's head. Here we go, this is it. Jacob says, swear to me you're not going to leave my body here. But when you go back, that you'll take my body with you to Canaan. The last thing to be prepared to die. You have to know God went before you. You have to leave a legacy of spiritual separation and physical provision. You have to realize that you were just a pilgrim. And the last thing is you have to trust that God keeps his promises. Let me tell you why that's true. Abraham was told in Genesis 15, way back, and I think it was passed along through the family, was told, your children will be in a land that is not theirs for 400 years, but I will bring them out and will bring them to Canaan. Jacob says, I know it's going to be a long time. I know that I'm not going to get to see that promised land in this life. He said, but I know that you're going to go there. I know our family is going to go there, so take my bones with you. He said, bury me with my fathers. And the details of how it actually works out are kind of interesting, but we'll talk about that at a later time. But the important thing to know is that he said, God promised that we were going to possess the land of Canaan. So don't you leave my body here 
take it with you. And one of the really interesting things, if you go to Israel, is on the Mount of Olives. There's a massive cemetery, huge, very expensive to be buried there. Because the Jewish people believe that when, Jesus, when the Messiah comes, they'll rise up from the dead and they're, be, uh, they're, they're facing the West. So they believe they'll rise up from the dead, stand up, and follow him in. In the United States, we bury our people facing East. So they'll stand up and see his face. Uh, one really, really sad thing to think about is that uh, they're looking the wrong direction one more time. Jesus comes back from the east, he stands up, and we see him. We shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. He keeps his promises. When your body is buried or whatever, I don't, you know, the, uh, when you're laid to rest, you say it's a promise that I know that God is going to raise me up again. You know, they're not, you know, I'm not taking any, uh, uh, not talking about cremation or different things here, but I want, I want you to know is that you as a Christian need to be assured that God will keep his promises as Jacob was sure that God would keep his promise of the land if you want to be ready to die. When you die, you know you will rise up again. You know, to be absent from the body is to be present from, with the Lord. And when the last trump sounds, the dead shall be raised incorruptible for this mortal shall put on uh, immortal, and this corruption, shall, this corruption shall put on incorruption, this mortal shall put on immortality, and we shall be changed. Are you ready to die? Do you know that God is a God who keeps his promises and that death is not the end? Do you know that you're just a pilgrim, that you're not losing anything that's really yours? You're leaving a hotel room. You know, I don't cry when I check out of a hotel room. Just sometimes I shout, you know, glory. Um, are you, have you made financial and spiritual provision left a legacy for your family? And last and most importantly, do you know that the lion of the tribe of Judah has gone on before you and he has prepared a way? Are you ready to die this morning? I hope that you are because you don't get to say, you know, um, when we were little playing hide and go seek, uh, my little brother did not get it. The, uh, we were playing hide and go seek. Right with God, I'm going to give you a chance.